0: The Gubbi Gubbi are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello and welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast, where people who have needed blood thank the donors who have saved, prolonged, or improved their lives. My name is Kate Fisher. I'm the creator of Milkshakes for Mali, an award-winning Australian storyteller and a change maker. I'm on a mission to end the persistent critical blood shortages in Australia, inspired by our seven-year-old daughter, Marley, who started receiving life-saving blood products when she was just three. Marley will be dependent on blood donors for the rest of her life. As for her... Blood products are life-saving when she relapses and life-preserving for every infusion in between. Milkshakes for Mali community, it is so amazing to be back behind the microphone, and I have got so much amazing news to share um, and to catch everyone up on. Um, first, any of you that follow the Milkshakes for Marley Instagram will know that at the end of July, Molly got influenza B um, and it hit her really hard. She was a very sick little girl. Um, this week, we're now mid-September, is her first full week back at school. Um, the post-viral fatigue has been brutal. And emotionally, it's been pretty tough for Jeff and I. Um, We really thought that she was relapsing and it's just been such a stark reminder to us of how fragile her little life can be and how quickly things could change. Um, But she's doing so much better now. And I'm so grateful to all of the people in the Milkshakes for Mali community who checked in on us, um, especially in the last six weeks when regular episodes of the pod haven't been dropping we love you all so much and we just wanted to let you know that that definitely had not um, gone unnoticed but we just had to put our little family first and we were also juggling lots of other things that were happening behind the scenes. Um, in August, Milkshakes for Mali became an award-winning podcast, taking out two silver medals in the Oz Mumpreneur People's Choice Awards for Making a Difference. This included social enterprise and global brands uh, recognising the amazing impact this podcast is having both domestically in and internationally um, and the followings that we have got now domestically and internationally as well with our listeners. So I'm so thrilled to have been able to use that platform to further my blood donation advocacy messages as I continue my mission to end persistent critical blood shortages in Australia and around the world. So thank you so much to everyone who voted, shared, made social media posts. Um, we had so many amazing videos come in of people asking their networks to vote in that award. Um, I'm so grateful for your support and really proud of the amount of new donors who have joined the milkshakes for Mali lifeblood team in recent months. And my final and very, very exciting announcement is that later this year, my first book will be on the shelves of a bookstore near you. This has been a long time in the making, um, And the Milkshakes for Marley book is a collection of stories, many collected from my interviews and guests from this podcast that documents extraordinary stories of survival made possible by Australian blood donors. I've written it in a really easy to read format that really focuses on all the amazing things that people go on to do with their lives after receiving blood donations and we are releasing it just before Christmas. Um, it will be the perfect gift for Christmas this year. And I'm asking people in the for Somali community to consider buying um, it for one of the three people that you have to buy a Christmas gift for this year to reflect the one in three Aussies that will need blood in their lifetime. So it could be your book-loving friend, a secret Santa present, Um, If you need end of year presents for your child's teacher or coach, or as a present for that family member who you just have no idea what to get, um, this is a gift that you can feel really great about buying for anyone in your life. And in doing so, you are joining me as a blood donation advocate. Details on how to pre-order will be available from October. Um, And if you just follow the Milkshakes for Marley social media, um, or keep listening here or wherever you get your pods. Um, I promise to share details of how to make that happen along the way. And now on with today's episode. When Alba's mum, Jess, and I first started chatting, it wasn't actually about milkshakes for Marley or my blood donation advocacy. It was actually about the seizure-like activity that her daughter, Alba, was experiencing. We chatted online the way that mums who parent medically complex kids do because all of us know how overwhelming having a sick kid can be. And I know all too well how terrifying it can be to watch your child have seizures. Of course, I knew of Alba, the Australian baby delivered by a Ukrainian surrogate 11 weeks early. Her parents, Kevin and Jess, jumping on a plane the next day to get to her as soon as possible, only to receive a phone call from the Australian government when they landed for a stopover in Dubai informing them that they could not enter Ukraine. All flights had been cancelled as while they had been in the air, Russia had invaded. But not getting to their baby girl wasn't an option for Kev and Jess. Their baby girl was here. She'd been born prematurely and she needed her mummy and daddy and not even a war zone was going to keep them from Alba. So instead they flew to Poland, And this is where they received the message that Alba was very, very unwell. Uh, She had bleeding on her brain. She was receiving blood products, but she was very unstable. So they tried to make a plan to get across the Ukrainian border without any luck. So they decided to try another way. And so via Austria and then Romania and eventually on foot with their suitcases in freezing cold conditions in the middle of a war zone, They got to Moldova and eventually Odessa. This is where their baby girl was in hospital. And just when they thought they could finally meet her, they were banned from entering the hospital for 12 days as they had been travelling internationally and this was in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and they had to follow the protocols that the hospital dictated. They didn't know if Alba would survive another 12 days. She had been born 11 weeks prematurely, um, but they had no choice. This story is simply extraordinary. And had I not been following Alba's story online for such a long time through the hashtag BringAlbaHome, I'm not sure that I could have comprehended this story as Jess was sharing it. And what blows my mind um, is just the level of normality of their life now. Um, while I was talking to Jess, she was telling me about you know childcare viruses and being tired and the juggle between her and Kev of you know parenting and work. And Jess is back at work now because the mortgage needs to be paid. And You know, Alba's had a run of illness that all kids pick up when they start childcare, and the normality of her experience now opposed to what they have been through in the last few years just totally blew me away. Um, And with that in mind, just a heads up that this chat does deal with themes of infertility and pregnancy loss. But most of all, it's just two mums who are so grateful to blood donors from all over the world for keeping our baby girls alive. So here is my chat with Jess on how blood donors helped her to bring Alba home. So today I welcome the amazing Jess to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast and community. Um, Our listeners, I'm sure, will know her beautiful face and I've just jumped on the call with her and I feel like I already know her because we all so intently followed Um, Her story of bringing Alba home um, and blood donors have been a big part of that story. So Jess, welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast and community. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to have you here. Um, We are going to start the episode today by talking about infertility and the way that it changes your perception of parenthood. Um, Our regular listeners will know that we have IVF babies. Um, I've had 16 lots of surgery for endometriosis and adenomyosis. So my husband and I were told that we couldn't have babies for a long time. Um, And our um, boys are IVF conceived babies. Um, So I get (laughs) the roller coaster that it is. Um, Tell me a little bit about you and Kev falling in love and thinking about wanting to start a family?
1: Wow so IVF is an awesome thing if it works (laughs) Mm -hmm. if it doesn't it's you're on the bottom of that roller coaster a lot of the time. Um, Yeah Kev and I've been together for 22 years we got together when I was quite young Um, Mm -hmm. yeah and we've been together ever since we um, met at work and then we sort of traveled the world together and then got home Mm -hmm. and Sort of thought, okay, let's let's try for a baby.
0: Yeah. You're both chefs, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 Cool. So we're we're both chefs. I'm having a bit of a gap year, we'd like to say.
0: But Look, uh, I think that you deserve <laughs> to
1: have a bit of a gap year. No, I'm not in a high pressure kitchen anymore. I'm in a much more chilled um, environment. Yeah, so um, and more family friendly hours. So that's mm. good. But um yeah we wanted to have a baby and we thought oh yeah it can't be that hard. <laughs>
0: But, you spend most of your life trying to prevent it, right? So, no,
1: no. Well, we were on the contraceptive pill for oh, gosh knows how long.
0: Yeah.
1: A waste of time that was. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really interesting. I'll get to it in a minute. But one of the reasons why we are infertile is because of a uh, immune issue.
0: Right.
1: Okay. Is quite interesting and relevant. Um, when I was listening to your podcast, I've heard IVIG message, uh, mentioned so
0: many times. Yeah, yeah. That's something that's been mentioned
1: to me um, yeah. a few so, times.
0: For our listeners so that's intravenous immunoglobulin infusion so that's the treatment that Marley is on and it's a broad spectrum of antibodies that are made um, for recipients from plasma human plasma donations and it's used for a range of autoimmune conditions so what is the autoimmune um condition that you've got Jess
1: <laughs> how long do we have <laughs> <laughs>
0: We can edit some out. <laughs> it's a really interesting one. So yeah, Kevin and I
1: decided we wanted to have a baby, and we started doing IVF. Um, after it didn't work, I had the picture perfect first round. I think we got ten eggs, eight fertilized, and we had six in the freezer. So it's Gosh, like they're great stats That th- looks perfect. Yeah, like and when it didn't work that first time, I was shocked. Like generally mm-hmm. like shocked. Um, yeah, we went on to do uh, further thirteen more transfers. Oh wow! Um, and if we got pregnant, I, mis- I had a miscarriage or a chemical pregnancy. Um, my body just wouldn't hold the baby, so we had quite a lot of testing done. And it turns out that it's a bit weird, and it's a bit again. Yeah, don't quote. Sorry, Elba's coughing in the background.
0: <laughs> she can join us if she needs a snuggle. Just bring her in. Oh, she's didn't have her
1: second nap at childcare, so she <laughs> went down as soon as we got home. Whatever. Um, do what you need to do. So everybody has these genes called a DQ alpha gene Um, and myself and my, you get one from your mother and one from your father. And um, someone's described it to me as like having blue eyes or brown eyes. Anyway, Kevi and my, you can be a partial match or a complete match. Yeah. Kevi and I are a complete match for this DQ alpha gene. It's controversial. Not many doctors believe in it. Um, There's only a select few in Australia who believe and test for it. Right. But it means that we're too similar yeah okay so when the embryo goes into my body it thinks it's a cancer or something bad and my body attacks it
0: mm-hmm. so
1: that it was what that. Yeah. yeah that's what ended up being the cause we think of our infertility mm-hmm.
2: and that's sort of
1: interesting link to sort of the work you do like yeah it's, yeah, it's mm. yeah it's all sort of intertwined it's I'm so
0: excited to talk to you today yeah so we were tested I don't know if it was for that but we had initial conversations because we had recurrent pregnancy loss as part of our journey as well so um I have carried 11 babies we have three living children so I understand yeah that chapter of your story a little bit
1: yeah it's just it's it's hard mm. and- yeah, To think it's something. Yeah. And then you go through it like that. I'm sure you have too, but like the grieving of all those embryos that went into your body that they didn't get a chance. Well, they tried, but your body attacked them in the end.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's and it's really difficult to know how then to acknowledge that as part of your family story. And if your grief doesn't match up with the people around you, um, we feel like a lot has changed in that Um, since we started our IVF 15 years ago, you just weren't allowed to talk about miscarriage, let alone early pregnancy loss. So it just wasn't a thing. It was a very taboo topic. So that's part of the reason that I have been so strong in speaking about those things um, because I know the impacts that it had on me and I don't ever want another woman to feel as alone as I did some of that time.
1: It's awful. It's something you wouldn't wish upon your absolute worst enemy. Absolutely. Just, yeah. Wanting to have a baby should be wanting to have a baby. Mm. Like, everyone deserves to have a family. It be exciting and it should right.
0: be, yeah. And but- yet, you know, it doesn't, we know that one in four pregnancies ends in a loss. And now that people are talking about it more, everyone's got someone in their group that has had a loss of Different. some kind.
2: Yeah.
0: But <laughs> um, it still should be an exciting time that you're navigating. For us, what we really underestimated about our infertility journey was the obviously there's the emotional aspect to it that, you know, it's heartbreaking and it's difficult and it's frustrating. The financial one is a really obvious one that people know that it costs a lot of money. Um and but more what I found difficult was the social aspect of it and people constantly saying, you know, oh, you know, when are you guys going to have a baby? And have you thought about having a baby? When are you going to have another one? Seeing prams in shopping centres, seeing, you know, the little baby things on the top of trolleys when you're at a shopping centre and, you know, baby clothes and nappies and you know, people going off on maternity leave when you're at work and then yeah. you're having to take on the hard slog of their job while they're getting to be away, enjoying their pregnancy and enjoying their baby. And um, yeah, I couldn't imagine my life not being a mum. I know not everybody is like that, but that's what I wanted from my life. Um, And my husband and I only did IVF because we knew that it would look good on our adoption paperwork. That was the advice that we were giving. And we had given we had started going down the route of overseas adoption, um, but we wanted to leave no stone unturned. And that was the only reason we did an IVF cycle. And we're so lucky we did because we hadn't been given great advice before that. Um, So you guys had seven years of primary infertility to start with. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was Mm -hmm. just, it was awful. And the whole social side, like over Christmas, it got to the stage, I think the last three Christmases I didn't do Christmas shopping. i like, I just couldn't face the shops. I couldn't face face the Santa photos. I couldn't face the, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. And I actually couldn't go into a baby shop until I think we're about maybe five months in, oh, no, I don't think we made it that far. Maybe 12 weeks with Elba, I actually went yeah. into a shop.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but even the social aspects, like, we stopped seeing all of our friends, like, because we get invited to parties and I just wouldn't go and then we just didn't get invited anymore. yeah. Which is yeah. no to them because, yeah, we weren't going to go anyway.
2: Because
1: so, mm. it was just so upsetting going there and seeing everyone with their babies and with their families and
0: mm.
1: just, just wishing so desperately it was you.
0: Yeah, and, and it's socially day. isolating. And it's hard because two things can be true at once. You can grieve that and mourn that and be upset by that, but also equally be happy for those people. And really? it's really difficult. It's to stay really present with both of those emotions and convey that to the people that you love.
1: Yeah, it's really hard. And it was, yeah, it was by far the hardest few years of our life. And we're different people now than what yeah. we were when we started trying for baby.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you decided to pursue surrogacy. And after lots of research, you decide you landed on... Um, Picking a surrogate who was in the Ukraine and I think it's really important for our listeners to know before we sort of dive into this aspect of it that Alba is genetically your child. She was an embryo that was made in Australia and then was transferred into a surrogate in Ukraine. Yeah. That's correct. Tell me about that journey. So
1: I desperately wanted to be pregnant like I just, I always wanted to be pregnant. I, I wanted to feel it. I wanted to be it. I wanted to mm-hmm. see it. I wanted, just wanted to be pregnant so much. But after I think our 14th cycle, my husband is like, I can't, I can't do this anymore because it wasn't his body. Yeah. He was watching me. He's like, I just cannot watch you. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I want to do see.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I knew there was one more option in Australia, um, which we could have tried, which again includes blood products. Um, okay. but our, yeah, so it's a, a pro, uh, it's called LMIT therapy, and so it's um, yeah sort of when my husband's blood, don't quote me, gets ta- taken and then it gets back okay. into me, and my body will build up an immune response to accept that embryo. Yep. But we couldn't do it because of other reasons. Um, my body was just so trashed from so many years of IVF. Yeah. We couldn't do it. So anyway, so that was, we've still got that one up a sleeve, I do like to think, if, in case, yeah, if by chance we do go down the path of another child, yeah. um, that's an option. But, yeah, we decided, okay, let's do surrogacy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we have, I've had friends who have done it in um, Mexico, in Ukraine, in Canada, America, and we did a bit of research and we liked the sound of Ukraine. Um, and it was more in our price range than Canada mm-hmm. and America. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we decided on Ukraine, and, um, yeah, Albert is our genetic embryo,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and we cho- We got given a surrogate and we met her, and we were happy. It all it all seemed really well. Um, yeah. So face-to-face met her? Not COVID, so no. Sure. <laughs> Okay, um, so you through, met her
0: via video calls. Yeah, we met
1: her by I think. just like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, she was speaking Russian, um sure. and we were speaking English, so we had a translator. Yeah, but it was but still, got a vibe. It felt right. It felt right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And she was yeah, she was lovely, and she just wants she wanted to give back. So wow, yeah. Like one of my questions was why Why do you want to be a surrogate? Yeah, like, it's easy for me. Um, I can. Wow yeah and in turn we could change hers by yes but by, by the the wage that she would earn mm-hmm. I guess you call it a wage or well, the
0: yeah. yeah yeah changing her financial circumstances yeah, yeah.
1: so we, yeah that's what we decided to do and yeah so we went ahead and did a transfer or signed our power of attorney for our medical over to somebody else which was huge yeah, that's really <laughs> tricky Especially, I like to control everything and Mm. I know everything about well I think I do everything about IVF I know everything um but when it came to this I had absolutely
0: no control. Yeah sure so did you have to get your own legal team involved or was there an Australian clinic that like guided you through the legal aspects of that?
1: Um not really the clinic in Ukraine did most of it right they sent over contracts and things and then of course we had to read them and um we had to get them all notarized and apostilled and all these things i would never heard of.
0: <laughs> it's a big- I'm having a low-key panic attack for you and your embryo. We haven't even got to the part that's tricky yet. <laughs> oh, I get to it. <laughs> I Totally. I mean, having been, I've done it in Australia, but having been through some, like huh. part of those aspects, I get, yeah, I understand the value that you put on those embryos and the fact that you know that that is One of your children that is being signed off to go away,
1: yeah. And you don't, you don't know where it is. You don't see pictures of the clinic. You don't see pictures. Like it's just like not having control was hard.
0: Yeah, really. And that didn't get better in your story. No, 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 that didn't get better. (laughs) No. So can you tell me about finding out that the surrogate had become successfully pregnant with your embryo? So because
1: the hours are like their nights, our day. So it was, it was hard. So we knew the blood test was that day and we sort of sent our best wishes and yeah, we were just waiting and waiting and waiting. And yeah. I was um, the worst two week wait ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was the worst two week wait. Um, yeah. And then we just got a text message as we always do saying um, your surrogate's pregnant blood test result is this.
0: Where were you when you got that message? I was in bed, (laughs) but I was awake. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I'm like, Kevin had just gone to bed. He was waiting up, but he'd just gone to sleep. And I'm like, we're pregnant. We're pregnant. Oh my gosh. And then didn't sleep
0: much. (laughs) It would be so surreal to wrap your brain around that. Like it's surreal enough when it's happening within your own body, but to have that happening. And as you said, so far out of your control, like what can you do? You just have to sit and you just have to wait. Did you continue to work at the same pace that you had been previously during this time? How did you carry the mental load of all um, of that and continue your profession?
1: Yeah, we continued to work. I had changed jobs about 12 months. Ago. IVF just got too much for me. Um, mm-hmm. I was head chef in a restaurant and, yeah, I nearly had a bit of a breakdown. Yeah. So I stepped away and I have a low-key job. So,
0: um, but I continued to work. Mm. Yeah, we continue to work doing our jobs and just yeah so it's up. not cheap right like you no. think about things like this and you think that life would just stop so you could just focus on that but you need to keep doing those things yeah. and so we were paying for it we were working a lot I actually picked up a second job
1: yeah we were just keeping busy and um just trying to do everything we can and I was a bit of a planner so I had elder's bags packed we yeah. set up like yeah I was ready
0: <laughs> so did you find out during the pregnancy? whether she was a boy or a girl yeah we did so we found out
1: because it was a gen because our was a genetically tested embryo yeah um, they already know but they can't tell you like um they sort of asked us to pick an embryo and we're like oh we're not picking it just the strongest one like the best one yeah Yeah. I rang our clinic in Melbourne and I'm like can you tell me what order to put them in what do we do and so they sort of told us what order to put them in and then when we got to 12 weeks I could ring our clinic and ask them what the baby was, if they, if they had proof of that the surrogate was pregnant and that it was past mm. X amount of date. Mm. Yeah. I, I knew she was going to be a girl. It was always going to be Alba. I
0: just knew it was going to be Alba. So you don't have to leave this. If there's any questions I ask you that you don't want to answer, just you can just say pass. But how many embryos did you send? We sent five. Yeah.
2: Where are the other four? they're home. What?
1: We brought them home.
2: You
0: managed to get them home in the middle of all of that?
1: Yeah. Oh Jess. I know I just couldn't I couldn't like some people had really awesome experiences over there. Um, our experience for many reasons I could never do it again and so like knowing how much I think four IVF cycles went into those embryos like and so much blood you you know what IVF is like so much like the supplements you're on for months the acupuncture you're on for months the everything you do the not drinking coffee not doing this this
0: detox that detox so much and blood. You get to the point when you've done it that many times as well that you'll do any crazy thing just to try and make it work <laughs> I can't believe them. that you got them back. I didn't think that there I was that that was going to be the answer to that I question. Imagine. I was so scared to ask you that question, so that's brought me undone.
1: <laughs> no, I was just really, um, I just wanted them home. Like, we yeah. don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. Like, we don't know when the power's going to go out. We don't know if they're going to run out of liquid nitrogen. We don't know if. Yes. And it's just um, I needed them to come home. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah we got them home. <laughs> So they are safely because they were our uh DNA. Yes. If you if we had have used a Ukrainian donut, we wouldn't have been able to bring them home. Yeah. Because they are ours, we could bring them home. Mm-hmm. So I just pray they were looked after and kept at the right conditions and
0: That's amazing. I, I didn't know. think there was any chance that was going to be the answer to that question. So I'm so grateful that you've yeah. got them safely oh, they are here. Back on Aussie land. Here. Back. They are back. Um, and- so you found out that you were pregnant. Yeah. Your surrogate was pregnant. Yeah. Fix my language if I'm not using language <laughs> that reflects your experience and I'll use whatever um, I'll got, perfect.
2: Yeah, yeah, Whatever sure.
0: language works for you. Yeah. Um, my intention is good even if I get it wrong. Um, and how much could you believe that this might be the time or was it just that surreal that you just believed this might be possible?
1: I. I always have a backup plan because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm so controlling and and like I'm very like I had a backup plan, but for this I didn't have a backup plan. No. like it was just gonna work,
2: mm.
1: and I just kept on saying to myself that this is our turn to hear. Yes, it's our time. It's it. it's our yep. time to hear, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Had you planned to go over when she was born initially, or uh, yeah? So we, my mum and I, were going to go over on
1: Anzac Day. Um. So, anyone, anyway, it's, I think, 25th of April, is it? Yeah.
0: And when was she due? I'll cut that out.
1: When was she due? <laughs> 11th. Of, uh, she was due on the 11th of May. Right. Um, and she came on the 22nd of Feb. Yeah, that's too early. <laughs> yeah. We were supposed to, Mum and I planned over to go, go on Anzac Day, which would give us two weeks before she was due.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: And then um, they don't really induce in Ukraine. Right. Even twins. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so they don't really induce. So, yeah, I thought we'd go over. We'd have two weeks, settle into the seaside town. Um, Kev would come over within a few days of her being born. And then, yeah, we'd probably stay for a month, get the passports, and then come home.
0: Yeah. So were you able to attend, like, in a perfect world, would have you been able to attend the birth? Um, Perfect COVID? Yeah, like... (laughs) No uh, COVID, no invasion of the country, none yeah. of the catastrophic things that were happening. Pre-COVID,
1: we would have been able to. Right. With COVID, when we would have been going over, well, this was, I thought it was my biggest problem. They said that I couldn't meet Alberta she was four days old. And I'm like, well, that's certainly not happening <laughs> <my baby>. because <laughs> yeah, they had like very strict COVID rules in the hospital. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. I'm going to be there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I would it. have been there. Yeah, exactly. I don't doubt that. I don't (laughs) doubt that. (laughs) And these are the things about, I might not actually leave this in the podcast record, but these are the things that I was thinking about. And I've been watching with the way that you have documented her story, that so much of the importance of what you're doing is that she can look back on some of this and see that even before you had that physical Mm -hmm. connection with her, that you were so connected to her right through that whole journey and I don't know what you'll choose to do with whether you'll choose to share any of this with her in the future but it's so important to have some of it here if that's what you choose to do well
1: I I was in a very good mindset when in the early stages of Albert's pregnancy um mm. I was really looking after myself. I was going to the gym five times a week. I was meditating, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I was writing and I wrote her, I, every morning I would write Alba and our surrogate a letter.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, from from one day post-transfer I wrote yeah. them letters and i
0: still got them actually. Um, I was going to say, have you, did you send them or have you still got copies uh, of
1: that work? I, I kept them. So yeah. I wrote them letters every day. Um. So I felt connected. Like I really, I did. Um, and I'd sent our surrogate over, um, is it called a harmony ball? Like the necklace that pregnant oh, yeah.
2: mother that yeah, yeah.
1: And so I'd sent her over one of those and I'd planned to buy one for myself Closest to the time. Um, and yeah. would know the
0: sound. Yes. And I wondered also- that with, I wonder whether, when you were saying before that you were learning how to speak Russian, I wonder whether she would pick that up more well that's what he, yes, so, in yeah, the future mama and tato like we we're learning how
1: to say mama and daddy and stuff mm. like that um and I also bought her a beautiful little music box um which she could turn and like an old-fashioned one and then I had one too yeah. so I would know that sound and the song was you are my sunshine <laughs>
0: Well, if we make any reels to promote this podcast, I'll make sure that we put that music in as our background music and then you and I will know the significance of it. (laughs) So what was your first indication, you know, global pandemic aside, that things might be a little bit trickier than what you had hoped they would be?
1: With the war? Look, with anything. Well, I wasn't available for any war conversation. So didn't watch the news. Um, I was just guided by our agency. And I would say to them, how's it looking in Odessa? And they're like, it's all good. Look, show us pictures. Look, children are playing in the park. There's no war, no threat of war. Mm -hmm. We're like, okay, cool. Yeah, there's no war. And my sort of stepdad would say to me, hey, what do you think about the war? And I'm like, ah, it's no war. It's nothing. It's nothing. it's like 100,000 tanks on the Ukraine border is not nothing. And I'm like, it's
0: nothing. And I But also like, what are you gonna do about it? Yeah. <laughs> Thank well, you for letting me know, but I am powerless to do anything about it. I've kind of been saying to people, like when
1: like when there was a little bit of threat of war, I'm like, the airspace gets closed. I'm going in <laughs> before it gets
0: closed. Yeah. Best laid plans, hey. So we were saying. When did you have an indication that Alba might be arriving early or did you get any indication she might be on her way?
1: Not really. So um, surrogates are really well looked after in Ukraine. It was a Sunday night and we were sitting on the couch and we got a message uh, messi- saying your surrogate's in hospital with a sore back. And we're like, she must have been, she was 28 weeks and four days.
2: Right.
1: And we're like, Phew back pain I'm sure all women get back pain when they're pregnant sure. and yep. my friend who'd done surrogacy in Ukraine had said don't worry she'll be
0: hospitalized three or four times before before the baby comes amazing so it was good that you at least had that expectation
1: yeah so I was we were right and then the next day she had an ultrasound and I asked them to send me the report um, and they sent me the report and i had forwarded it onto my Melbourne midwife and she was off that day so she couldn't get back to me um, she was going to call me the next day. And then I was, yeah, we, we were sitting. Um, the agency hates me saying this, but I don't really care because I'm not lying. Um, just in case you would. Yeah, we were sitting. I was at home one night and Kevin was at work and we got a text message saying, hello, your baby's been born unexpectedly. She's alive for the moment.
2: Oh, Jess. Yeah. So that's how we found out Abel was here. Mm -hmm. I still yeah
0: that couldn't have been done in a phone call maybe sent you a photo given you some statistics like that's just for the moment and that was pre-invasion right like even if things were a little bit tricky so it's not like that was the only way that they could communicate with you time frame so what do you do you get the text message what's the next thing you do I had a massive panic attack (laughs) yeah after you've had the panic attack,
1: <laughs> I yelled at my mother
2: because
1: mm-hmm. she couldn't get me there quick enough. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, I can get you on a flight 1030 tomorrow. I'm like, it's not soon enough.
0: Get me on a plane today. Yeah. I don't care where I have to go via. I just need to know that I'm doing something.
1: It was COVID. So yeah. we need tests, And so I was like, okay, we're not going till tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so yeah, the next 24 hours is a blur. Yeah could you even contact the hospital to get any update or could you contact your surrogate or it all had to be done through the agency it had to be Done through the agency I didn't know what hospital she was in oh
1: my gosh Jess it was awful not knowing where she was and yeah it was it was it was horrible but it, this was pre-war so I think this was the 22nd and I think the war broke out on the 24th or the 24th,
0: 24th yeah I was trying to work out when I was putting the episode together even in terms of like international time difference and stuff, Mm -hmm. how close it was to unfolding. So thinking about your surrogate in terms of the war as well, did she have other children at home? She did. So she had two children. She has two children and a husband. Um, But because she lived
1: um, outside of the city, she lived in Kherson, which is, yeah, it's not in a good place at the moment. Um, She was moved into the city of Odessa, from about 12 weeks, I think. So her children were with her husband, sort of traveling between. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time that the war broke out, she wasn't with her children. Oh, gosh. Yes. Yeah, so she was in in hospital. And that was a, when we found out Albert was born, our second question was Is our surrogate okay?
0: Yeah. And right. that's what I was thinking that you weren't with your child in. Yeah a catastrophic horrible situation but she also wasn't with her children so yeah. you were two moms that were displaced from your children in awful 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 circumstances she was she couldn't get her children couldn't get to
1: her which was just yeah so she was discharged from hospital in in a city in a war so she was um, volunteering at the maternity house every day um yeah until her children yeah and her children arrived the day after we left
0: what a woman. So you didn't get to meet her children?
1: Not her children.
0: Oh, But also
1: her children didn't know she was the surrogate. Okay. Yeah. So,
0: oh. yeah, not many people did. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you get on a plane? Yeah. So who got on the plane with you? So just Kevi
1: and I. Yeah. Um, so that day I did the most ridiculous things, like – I went and bought baby clothes. <laughs> well, you got to do something, right? Like you can't just sit there and look at your I phone. I had to go into work and tie, in, tie up loose ends. And then I hadn't been replaced yet because I wasn't going to maternity leave for eight weeks. That's so me. did you tell work when you went in? I, I rang. My boss was one of the first few people I called. Yeah. And she's, yeah. I, she, yeah. What do you say? Yeah. She's just like, just. Calm down, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. We'll worry when we need to worry. That's what she always used to say to me. Um, yeah, so tied up loose ends, went and bought preemie baby clothes, um, as you do, um packed our bags. Again, we didn't know we were going to a war zone, so I packed for some holiday. Um, oh yeah, of course you didn't. Books I packed, <laughs> which Kevin
0: reminds me about all the time. Um, but you still haven't read them? <laughs> they're sitting right. There. Yeah. <laughs> Who's got time? <laughs> um,
1: yeah, so we packed up and yeah, Dad took us to the airport. Dad and stepmom took us to the airport and said goodbye. And we were exhausted.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Actually, we got a call from the government saying, can you not get on that plane? And we're like, our baby, stop us. <laughs> They're like, we strongly advise that you don't get on that plane. And we did. But, yeah, of um, course you did. Of again, course we it. did. We didn't think much of it. Like, we didn't really think, I don't know,
0: we were just thinking about Elba. Mm, Of course you were. In the same way that any new mum would just be focused completely on their baby and you don't really care what else is happening outside those hospital walls. Like, you had a big lot of trouble to do in the middle. But Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this when writing the episode of how difficult I felt it to birth my first baby prematurely. And then he was in NICU and I got put in my hospital room and the sense of terror and separation that I felt from him when I woke up the next morning and he wasn't in my belly anymore. And he was in a humidity creep down the hallway. And then how traumatic it was for me to leave hospital before him, because he was still in special care nursery and still needed a, Like I can't even begin to conceptualize having your child on the other side of the world and then hearing that a war has broken out and then trying to get to your child and then getting stuck in Dubai so tell me how that happened
1: so we were on the plane and we were exhausted so we slept and Good. then I think we must have woken up four or six hours to go and then we we're excited yeah. Scared so we anymore we we're excited we were like looking at our watches thinking oh, we're going to be without but four hours till Dubai we've got a four-hour layover and then Two hours that we're going to be with her in like maybe 10 hours, we're going, to, yeah. we're going to have her, and we're just just so excited like, we're just so excited to get there. And then, yeah, of course, when we got to to Dubai, we sat down, we ordered a bottle of champagne, um, we thought we'd have a bit of a relax. Yes. Didn't hear from any of my family, and I did not think that was a bit strange, but I thought, oh, they're just giving us space. And then the government rang saying, um, that all flights have been cancelled and to get to Emirates straight away. And I'm like, no, 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 still on the board. We're going to Odessa today. And they're like, no, you're not. And like I just, to be honest, I can't obviously haven't processed it. So <laughs> yeah, I can't really remember. It was horrible. Like I feel I feel sick thinking about it. Those two weeks, I think I said something before was the hardest. This was hardest. <laughs> yeah, sure. Two weeks of not, we couldn't get to it for two weeks. And it was awful.
0: Mm-hmm. You talk about, you hear so many mums talk about the dreaded two-week wait between having an embryo transferred and then finding out whether you're pregnant is that dreaded two-week wait, but being stuck in limbo somewhere in the middle, waiting to see if you can get to your child. One of the questions I was going to ask you as well, because I really want to focus on the human side of this, not just the catastrophe side, is were people congratulating you on being new parents or was the situation so absurd and so scary that people were frightened to congratulate you just in case you couldn't get to her
1: our family and friends were like a good friend of mine came over the day before we left for the day we left with a big bundle of things and it just didn't feel and i wasn't ready to be congratulated yeah it was really because we yeah it was really it was a really strange feeling um, yeah I, I didn't feel ready yeah um because she wasn't even supposed to be here yet
0: yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: I just didn't, and we also Did didn't you know feel that. like a mum.
0: I didn't
2: feel yeah. recently, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And look, that's such a common experience of people that have had prolonged fertility journeys, mm-hmm. or people who have had babies in IQ that end up with mm-hmm. medical PTSD. Um. That. It's really hard to accept once it's finally happened that that baby is yours and that you get to keep that baby and that you are a family now. So, all the added complications on top for you guys, it must be so tricky.
1: But we didn't know, like, I, I think I'd known a few premier babies or, you mm. know, friends and friends had premies, but I didn't know they could be sick. Like, it didn't cross my mind that Elba was going to have medical issues. Yeah, okay. But she's gonna be small, she just needs to grow, bring her home. Like
0: and that's an interesting insight into that social aspect that we were talking about as well, because you probably didn't lean into too much of the journeys of friends, family, people outside you that were having babies and their experiences, and they probably didn't tell you those details because they were being respectful of the fact that you guys weren't able to have a baby yet. So they're not gonna complain about or share those details, maybe yeah it, I guess that wasn't your experience you didn't know what it was like to have a premier baby No,
1: and like even with like social media like I follow so many IVF fertility all these sorts of accounts didn't follow any NICU ones yeah okay but now I'm like yeah mm-hmm. accounts like yours and um like some yeah I'm just so more into the that that side now yeah of course
0: so tell me about the first time that you saw a photo of her
1: um we first saw a photo of her the night she was born um yeah, okay. I was sitting right here on the phone to my therapist <laughs> yeah. um and the photo came through and we just cried and cried like, oh, she looks big she looks big yeah and then photos were very few and far between um mm-hmm. and this is something which yeah still causes me a great deal of um it's very different having a baby in Ukraine's medical system than it would be in our medical system here Mm-hmm. We didn't get updates. We didn't know much about her. When we arrived at our first hotel in Warsaw, we got a video message saying, which was being translated, that our baby had a severe brain bleed on both sides. She had underdeveloped lungs, and they had both collapsed. And she had underdeveloped intestinal intestinal system. Wow. And we didn't know what any of that meant. Yeah. And that's what we got, and then we didn't hear anything for two days. And we were saying, can we please have updates? Please, can we have updates? And they're like like they're in a war so and they're looking after 20 other surrogate mothers yeah but we didn't we couldn't directly talk to the doctors because they didn't speak English I didn't know what hospital she was in um we were trying to get Russian speaking doctors from Australia to contact them sure but because like Elba wasn't even called Elba the whole time she was there which yeah still breaks my heart a little bit
0: yeah absolutely yeah Maybe she will know, though, that that's the name that she wasn't to have that name until you guys were all together, that's the name that her mum and dad gave her. And maybe that will make that special.
1: Yeah, but she was, She's she had a very hard time. And, yeah, the, the hospitals are very different in Ukraine than they are in Australia.
0: Yeah. Like the NICU, yeah. Mm. So what I found fascinating about this story is In terms of the work that I do and part of the reason that I've asked you to come on this podcast, apart from the fact that I wish I could just sit down with a cup of tea with you and hug you because I just think your journey is remarkable and I think the strength that you're showing in sharing the things that you do just I just have so much respect for you guys I just think you're amazing and I can't wait to meet little Alba one day because with a mum like you I imagine she's going to be a tenacious little thing with a lot of spunk so I can't wait to meet her.
1: you're out to the Sunshine Coast.
0: Yeah <laughs> um is that had people not donated blood prior to her arrival she wouldn't have been able to be sustained in that neonatal intensive care unit until you guys could get to her and it's though one of those things that we bring up through the podcast is that you have no idea when you or someone that you love is going to be dependent on people who in the days beforehand have made those blood donations that can keep you alive particularly in terms of the fact that you know within days of her birth that a war had broken out and had that blood not been donated previously, people wouldn't have been able to get there to even donate blood. Like you were saying, your surrogate couldn't even get to her children. So, you know, how are people going to make appointments to make regular blood donations? Not that I know how the Ukraine blood donation system works intimately, but she would have needed at that gestation, she definitely would have needed platelet infusion um with you know the collapsed lungs and the brain bleed and with her intestines with all of those things if you know surgical intervention she would have needed that blood back up did you get the opportunity to make any decisions about her care at any stage before you got to the Ukraine and have you had a chance to access any of her medical records from that time
1: no no we didn't have any chance to make any medical decisions um um, and their medical records are handwritten, so in Russian. No, in Ukrainian in this hospital. Um, so we've got the medical records. They're all handwritten. Mm. Um, it's, very, it's a very old-fashioned hospital, yeah. and the processes are very old-fashioned. But what were, you just touched on with the work you do, like the people, I had no idea, like with the blood donation, like I don't know how they do it in Ukraine, but we were saying, can we give blood?
2: Yeah,
1: They were like, can we give blood? And we couldn't because we were foreigners. Mm. But the people in Ukraine who did donate blood saved Elba's life
0: Mm. and also
1: our surrogates because she lost a lot of blood during labour. Oh, wow. Needed several um, blood transfusions. I think that's the right lingo. Afterwards. Um, Mm -hmm. but One interesting thing, like I didn't, we were in the hospital one day and we would take photos of the machines and everything and send them to the doctors in Melbourne. Yeah. No one spoke to us. No one told us what's happening. And I took a photo of something and I said, why is that red? Why? And I was sort of trying to translate, why, why is that red? And they're like, oh, that's blood.
0: Wow, well, she was having a blood transfusion at the time and you didn't no, even
1: know. No. And they have it wrapped in foil, the blood. Okay. Yep, yep. I don't know if they do that here. But it was very, um, yeah. But I didn't actually know she was having a blood transfusion mm. until I'm like, what's that? Why is it red?
0: Yeah. So some blood products can't have contact with direct sunlight. So that would be an interesting indication of exactly what she was having.
1: And also in Ukraine, another thing, like I saw a tube going into a jar and I'm like, what's that? What's it for? And they're yeah. like, translate, she's got a catheter in. I'm like, why does she have a catheter? They, Ukraine law is you need to have a catheter if you're having blood transfusion. Right. So that's another another difference. Yeah, that's true. Um, while we're talking about blood transfusions, mm. Albert also received one in London.
2: Yeah, wow.
1: You in London, um, which like so that's we've had blood donors from two countries. Mm. Like donate blood to her, and it's just something we're just so grateful for.
0: But with the interesting thing in London,
1: if they nearly didn't do it because we weren't recognised as her legal guardians.
0: Yeah, so I have got a whole set of questions yeah. about that that I wanted to know um, how that
1: worked and whether like today saying we could talk for ages, but. <laughs>
0: Yeah, whether it got easier when you guys got into a Commonwealth country with her or if it was more difficult and how much information you were able to take with you across those borders.
1: Um, So it was interesting. Ukraine kept on telling us because um, there was a lot of pressure from our families in Australia and the government to get us out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But Ukraine, the doctors was like, you leave, she dies, your fault. Yep. Pretty much, like she's she's gonna die. So if you take her now, she'll die, and it, it's on you. It's not on us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, we, we we left and we did it, and we eventually via Moldova, and then got to London. And it was easier, like it was amazing, like the communication and like, like I can't even. When we walked in there, and um, someone t- took us up, and he's like, "I've been called in for your baby," and I'm like, "What is this guy like a priest or something?" <laughs> he didn't come back, and I. St- I'm like, oh, he's got to be like a chaplain or something. He's here for bad news. And he was an admin. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, Just oh, stuff. She's <laughs> like, no, Albert's fantastic. And I'm like, really? Like, I think they were expecting her to be worse than what she was. But whilst the treatment was better and easier, we had so many loopholes to jump over because the hospital okay. was like, you're not her legal guardians. And we're like, well, we're on her birth certificate. But if we, were, if we were British or if we're from the UK, we would, need to go to a uh, prp like a patient review panel to get legal requirements to be her parents to make legal decisions and so they were nearly not going to do her brain surgery um oh gosh. because we weren't her legal guardians and the neurosurgeon was like do oh, right, we're going to do it anyway
0: what hospital was she in in london
1: Right
0: on the street hospital. Yeah. So oh. I actually thought about her when I was pretty sure that's where she was, but I wasn't sure enough to write it into the episode, but I was in London a few months ago. And when, yeah, when I went past there, I was like, I wonder if this is where Alba was. And I had thought that I had recognized that and just had a little moment to think about your little girl while I was mm-hmm. there. And I think that's the incredible thing about this story is that it humanised war I think and what it means for families around the world and I think that's part of the reason that people became so captivated with your story and with Alba's story and I imagine not being in Australia because you were you know trying to get to your girl and trying to save her life it would be really difficult for you to ever wrap your brain around the amount of people that I mean it was COVID so isolation and whatever but the amount of people that were chatting about it and you would a post up of you know some kind of update would come through and it Alba was what was happening in all of our group chats like my group chats with my girlfriends we were excited for her and I've got so many of my close friends have mm-hmm. um, are bereaved mums um, or they have been through fertility journeys or yeah lots of those complicated scenarios are the people in my inner circle because you know that's what we've been through and there's so many medical mums unless you're a medical mum you don't get it unless you've been in intensive care with your child and not known if they're going to make it to sunrise the next morning you don't get it like you just can't unless you've been there um And she was so much like we felt like her little cheerleaders back home in Australia. And, you know, whether it was that we could, you know, make a little financial donation to try and support you guys over there or send a kind message or put a message on a post or go and do a blood donation or whatever it was. It's giving me goosebumps even telling you this story because it's so hard to articulate how much Australia was behind her and wanted her back to wrap her in Aussie love and look after her and. Wanted you guys to be back here too, so we're just so lucky. Like, I'm so glad that she's here, <laughs> that you guys got back. And that's an example of it is that when I was in London, I went past that hospital and I was like, "Oh, that's Alba's hospital. That's where she was." And imagined what it would have been like for you guys to be at
1: home for four months London. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was just, yeah, yeah. But we we felt the love, like we really, we really did, and. Mm-hmm. Like we're just so incredibly touched by how much everybody donated Mm -hmm. and like just just the love and just the, uh, so much love for this little girl. Like she's Mm going to teach people things. She already has. She's taught me patience. Yeah, yeah. But she's going to teach,
0: yeah. Mm. I say all the time, you know, Marley at times has been as fragile as she has been fierce and there is absolutely some reason that she is still in this world whether it's our blood donation advocacy journey or whatever it is that she shouldn't still be here. Like she's gotten, you know, no one really gave her a fighting chance so many times. And it's incredible to see medical professionals a few years down the track that see her without, if you're going for an appointment with our other children and they they can't hide their shock in seeing that she's there. She's not using a speech device anymore. She's not in a wheelchair anymore. She's mobilizing independently. She's communicating. She's at school part-time like no one even expected her to still be here, let alone be living a fulfilling life. So I think you will find mm. as Alba grows that you're going to have lots of cheerleaders that celebrate those successes along the way. Um, um, I wanted to ask you again, tell me if it's too personal and tell me to back off, but I share it from a place of having done it myself. One of my greatest views when Thomas, our firstborn, was um, in intensive and special care when he was first born, was that I was so frightened every time I walked through those doors. And if they had moved their little isolates, the humidity cribs around, I was so frightened that I wouldn't know which one was my baby and that everyone would judge me because you should totally know which one's your kid, right? But they all just kind of look the same to me in that postpartum haze and hormones and stress and all of the things. And so I tied a little balloon to the top so that I would always be able to see that balloon and it took me such a long time to like I'm talking like a decade to admit that to anybody because I was so convinced that someone would work out that I was a fraud and I wasn't really his mum and I think that comes off that you know journey of infertility and having trouble accepting the fact that you are a mum and really bonding with that baby initially and not you know doing it with love and not fear how did you know which one was Alba when you went into a Russian speaking hospital? We didn't. We, how? Like, how?
1: We walked in and it was a very different setup, Niku, um, very old hospital. It was like three different rooms and we were sort of following and we were looking in that room and then we were sort of looking in that room and we were sort of following her and they pointed. They told us that's your baby.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we just went over to her and it was a very, yeah, surreal feeling because she looked so sick
0: did she look like yours Mm -mm. no and it's difficult when they're having that medical intervention as well is that they don't even necessarily look like babies let alone look like your child Mm um i really struggled to connect with Marley every time she's been in an induced coma she's intubated she's ventilated you know post status epileptic seizures is once there's that much medical intervention it's -hmm. like you lose that connection between her being your human child and this more being a situation that needs to be managed if that makes sense and you're sort of in that survival mode of putting the steps in place
1: and I was scared of her
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah I didn't didn't want to hurt her didn't want to yeah, and also, like, like if you would hear the, the NICU nurses would say, it's okay, you can touch her head,
2: but there we didn't.
1: No one really told us that it was okay to do this or to do that or, yeah, we didn't get to do. And even and- just
0: global pandemic, like, you'd been travelling internationally, like, I'm sure you did COVID tests and stuff, but you just have to be so careful with, and even travelling with her to move her across countries, like, I just don't, like, your story is stranger than fiction. Like, you couldn't write this story. So tell me about your little Alba. How old is she now? Do you want to get her? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> she's, childcare changed her, so she's not dressed very nicely. <laughs> Whatever. Are you singing your song? We got bed hair
2: <gasps>
1: Hello,
2: beautiful
1: girl. Say hi, hi. Hi, Alba. You?
2: Hi, Kate. Hello, darling. My name's Kate. Hi,
0: Kate. How are you, little onto beauty? She wants <laughs> the screen. Oh my gosh, she's so beautiful, Jess. Alba. <laughs> hey. Alba. Hey, darling. So I was just asking your mummy, Alba, we'll involve you in the conversation, about what are your favourite things, darling? What makes Alba <laughs> smile?
1: Uh, tickles. <laughs> tickles. <laughs> <laughs> That's tickles, don't you? Oh, hello. She loves saying no. Oh, Alba, no. would you like some dinner? Would you like some dinner? You're hungry <laughs> at the moment. Um, her favourite things are the cat and the dog. Yep and playing with things she's not allowed to yes great how old is she um how old are you huh? she's cranky That's okay <laughs> aren't you because i'm not letting her touch the screen she's february march april may june july nearly 17 months 16 months i think oh, my darling girl. and she's at care now yes yeah, she goes to child care Yeah. You're in a really good mood. (laughs) You're in a really good mood. We have a chest infection.
0: Yeah, baby. So, how does that work now post collapse lungs, post premihood? Like, has her immune system recovered? um Okay. Hey, darling. Say bye. Bye bye. Lovely to meet you, Alba.
1: She's cranky, it's not her best hour. Um, well, then we had the yeah. infantile spasm, so she was put on steroids, so her immune system was really bad, yeah, when she had the spasms. But, um, yeah, I had to go back to work because mortgages well, we don't pay themselves, no, they don't. No, so she has really randomly one big lung, one small lung. right? If she was born at term, she probably would have had it too. Um, okay. so we're very wary of her and her immune like immune system but I don't know I, she's really strong like mm-hmm. she's been in child care for five months mm-hmm. um, I work at the childcare too so oh I'm, that's amazing I'm never further than like 10 meters away from her but um, yeah she's only had about three sick days like her she has immune system built like and I don't know I, I sort of think maybe that's the I don't know like her, I don't want to make Ukraine look bad here. Um, no. They had dogs in the hospital. Yeah, okay. So, um, like they had dogs in the entrance of the hospital. Like when you washed your hands, you dried them on like a communal towel. Um, yeah, right. Put in this, the bunny that I'd been carrying around Eastern Europe. she yeah. She had brain surgery and I walked in one day and the bunny's sitting on her head. And I'm like,
0: I'm just going to take that. Oh, my gosh. That is not the experience you would have in an Australian hospital. <laughs> no. so, um, it
1: was very different. So I think she's got a very strong immune system. She shouldn't. Mm. I think she really does. I'm a little bit concerned at the moment because she's got a bit of a chest infection. But um, yeah. she's, yeah, she's pretty tough. Yeah. She's very tough. She's determined and she's tough and she's hilarious and she's cheeky. And she's mine. (laughs) Yeah, she is yours.
0: (laughs) She's your girl.
1: (laughs) um, Yeah, she's very,
0: yeah, she's awesome.
1: And I just love it a bit.
0: Yeah. So what does her life look like now? Does she have ongoing um, medical concerns? Is she living with any type of disability? What does life look like for Alba in an average week? So because I've had such a severe brain
1: bleed, um, she's been diagnosed with cerebral palsy, yes. uh, which is quite common for Premies. Mm-hmm. Um, and cerebral palsy, I didn't know anything about it. Another thing that along with NICU, along with preemies, along with I'm now learning about um, what additional needs families, is that what
0: you call yeah, what it's like to be a family with additional needs rather than have a special needs child. So, and we talk about that. We thread it through the podcast. I love that you're one of our podcast listeners. Um, and we talk about the impact that that has on a whole family, and not just referring to it as a special needs child, but you become a family with additional needs once you have someone in your family with an injury, illness, or disability, um, due to the you know social, emotional, financial impact that it has on your life, and particularly being a carer, um, how much that impacts on your whole family.
1: So this is just a whole other world that I've entered into is learning about cerebral palsy and learning about um, what it means and, like, with lots of they don't know until she turns two, they keep saying. But, um, yeah, we do a lot of therapy. Yes. We do speech therapy, uh, speech pathology. We do um, OT. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have two physiotherapists. Mm-hmm. Alba's just done an amazing two weeks intensive physio. um and she's gonna walk before she crawls. Whoa. So wow. So one of my biggest, like when when I was first told that Albert could have CP was like, um, I'm like, we live in a two-story house. Is she gonna be in a wheelchair? But I'm just determined to prove people wrong, like she will walk and yeah, she, she will she will she will walk because oh. like Strong, but she'll yeah but it's it's hard like it's like yeah it's it's not how I thought motherhood would be no another fork in the road another chapter for the book yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah it's it's still something I'm trying to get my head around if I'm completely honest mm-hmm. um but it's something that yeah she's determined I'm determined and Kevi's determined and we're just gonna mm-hmm. keep proving people wrong I mean she shouldn't be here yeah. She should have died. like she had brain surgery on her bedside in ukraine where they came in with plastic bags full of theater equipment they did the surgery i didn't even know she went under an anesthetic she did apparently um like she survived so much and i just know that this is just going to be another thing that she's yeah going to take That's in her awesome.
0: Literally takes in her stride when she's walking before she's crawling. Um, We have said plenty of times that one of the greatest gifts of our infertility has been our gratitude for the children that we have got, and whether it's through you know our children's physical or neurodevelopmental disabilities um, or Marley's chronic illness, that we were so sure for such a long time that we were never going to have them. That with each thing that pops up we're just like well you know whatever like compared to where we thought we would be that's nothing like we can do this because we've got them and that's all that matters we'll just make the rest of it work and from where you guys have come from i can't imagine how crazy that must be but then how do you carve out space to give yourself permission just to experience the challenges of motherhood And be kind to yourself in that without having to feel completely grateful all the time. Like, how do you just allow yourself to be tired and to say that it is hard and to ask for help and all of those things? What have you done to make sure that you can still do that? I don't. (laughs) (laughs) That is some good honesty.
1: (laughs) Um, Like you said, like, just being so grateful. Do you want a girl or a boy? And I'm like, oh, I don't care if it has 10 legs, whatever. I don't yeah. know anything. But I don't I don't know. I do have a lot of evenings where, not a lot, I have occasional evenings where, where I do feel guilty. Like, mm. I didn't do, like, but I'm like, oh, can't you just go to sleep?
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, and that's completely, that's a completely normal thing that mothers around the world are feeling every single day. But absolutely. coming from where we, you know, some similar experiences I find it hard to let myself have those feelings and that's why I asked you that question I feel immediate guilt when I start to have those feelings because then you've got that voice in the back of your head saying you're so lucky that you've got this kid why are you annoyed that she won't go to sleep because you just want to go and go to the bathroom alone or have a shower by yourself or whatever it is that you want to do so yeah I was interested to see whether that was something that you and Kevin had talked about as well
1: definitely is it definitely is but it's yeah it's it just sometimes it feels like there's just constantly challenges mm. and and parenting a child with additional needs is is different like it, it's not like everyone else in mother's group and it's yeah sometimes I do feel a little bit like mm. we've got the hard road again
0: yeah and uh, you do and it is going to be hard
1: but Yeah, then I sort of think just how lucky we are to have her. And
0: she's the happiest baby. Mm. As you just saw, she was cracking it. But (laughs) she's like, if that's cracking it, she is the happiest baby because that was adorable. (laughs) Loved the idea when I was writing this episode that Marley wouldn't still be alive if she didn't literally have the blood products of thousands of other people running through her body. And so inside of her, there's little pieces of lots and lots of different people. Um, And that was something that I couldn't give her. I couldn't have preserved her life in any way without the help of somebody else to keep her within our family and I liked the idea of that parallel that although Alba grew in someone else's body for a really small amount of time someone else just gave her that little start in life that she needed so that she could come home to her mummy and be with you guys. We're so
1: lucky that yeah that our surrogate did that for us.
0: Yeah amazing and that blood donors were able to save the life of your surrogate and to preserve Alba's life as well.
1: And one of the things when I got back actually before I'd even listened to your podcasts, I um went and signed up at our local blood donation because no, amazing. Because we weren't allowed to. I'd never done it before. Um, yeah. in Ukraine we weren't allowed to. And in London we couldn't, but I we could do, but I don't know what happened.
0: COVID probably.
1: Yeah, we 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 couldn't. Uh, We've been in Ukraine or something like that. So we couldn't do it. So when we got back here, I'm like, it's gonna be my mission to do yeah. it.
0: Yeah. And it feels so nice. Like I love knowing when I'm doing a blood donation that there is three people that are going to have their lives saved, prolonged or preserved by me doing a donation. And I like to think about three families just like ours when I'm doing, I usually donate plasma. But when I'm doing that, that there's three families just like ours that will get to have more time together because of what I've just done. So it's not just about the blood product recipient. It's about their families and loved ones as well
1: at work today when I was leaving, they were talking about they need to do a
0: fundraiser or something, and I'm like,
1: oh, I've been listening to a podcast all day, haven't we all? <laughs> have
0: <fun?" laughs> yeah, and that's the thing, I think, too, because, you know, people financially they wanted- so much at the moment with rising interest rates. Um, we've come out of a global pandemic where we want to give more and do more, but then everyone's so financially impacted. And doing, you know, donating blood, it is free you get free food, <laughs> you can go and get a milkshake for Marley and give her some plasma or some blood products um, and think about Alba at the same time. So is there a final message that you would like to give to blood donors all over the world um, or someone who's considering making a donation after listening to this episode?
1: Uh, just
0: just do, just
1: do it. I mean, you can save someone's life that you don't even like no need and you don't know when you're going to need it. Like, if it wasn't for these blood donors, if it wasn't for the the selfless people in Ukraine who donated blood, who saved Elba's life there, in London, in Australia, like, you know, for children like Mali and Elba, like, mm-hmm. and for parents, for mums like you and me, like, we're just yeah. so lucky we have our girls because of mm-hmm. other people donating blood. And Absolutely. it's not that bad. <laughs> like everyone at work today was like, oh, I'd love to do it, but does it hurt? I'm
0: like, no. Mm-hmm. I think the thing is too, people often have blood tests done when they're sick or they're a bit dehydrated and it's for a medical reason. So it's not nice. But when you go in there, this is what the people do all day, every day is take blood from people. So they're so good at it. They're so gentle. They're so kind. You get, you know, warm blankets and heat packs to put on your arm and you're so well hydrated before you go in. And it's the perfect conditions to make it as comfortable as possible. So My sister's
1: done 105 plasma donations. Has she really?
2: Yes.
1: Well, there's every chance. So where's she? Where does she live? She was giving them in Gippsland and then in Hobart.
0: Oh, wow. How exciting. So, yeah, I I mean, given that plasma pools for IVIG are nationwide, there's every chance that a little bit of your sister is floating around in Mali keeping her alive. I've done
1: plasma once and I was sick, so I'm...
0: I've been given instructions for next time just yeah you were sick while you were having doing the donation yeah don't have to put that in (laughs) I make sure you get some of the chewable calcium tablets next time so there's like quick ease ones they can give you this is the way that I can do it and I haven't had a problem since I've started doing these so you know how quick ease is chalky and awful you don't want those if you ask the nice lady when you check in there's always some chewable ones behind like that counter and just say can I have some of the chewable quickies three of those I've never had that mouth tingly feeling and stuff again it's gone away it's just no, extra really,
1: awesome. I really yeah. wanted
0: to do it and I was watching it and yeah like seeing how clear and perfect and yellow it is, it's so fascinating I love it like I love looking at the bags of it all separated and Yeah, it's one of these weird quirks we have as medical mums. Once you, like that whole medical environment is no longer, I mean, it is scary when your kid's in there because you're worried about your kid, but you become a bit desensitized to seeing these medical type things, I think. So it becomes fascinating.
1: I would just say to anyone, yeah, if you've never done it, just do it because you don't know when you're going to need it.
0: No, you don't thank you so much for being such a special thank you the Somali community um we have been cheering Alba from the sidelines for such a long time and it's such a joy to have her little face on our podcast briefly today um and to get to know you a bit better and I feel like there is some special things that we can do together um yeah thank you thank
1: you so much Kate
0: For so many of us, I think this is a story that really humanised war. Um, When you see these atrocities reported on the other side of the world, it's easy to feel detached from it. But when a premature Australian baby whose life was in danger was stuck in the middle of a war zone that prevented her parents from getting to her, it made it all feel so much more real. I followed the Bring Alba Home hashtag and was just amazed by Kev and Jess and the horror that they had to live through to get to their daughter. Um, But as I interviewed Jess for this podcast episode, I could see that she is just so much like all the medical mums that I know who are juggling having a medically complex child with a disability alongside every other commitment in her life that still stands. Finding time to work, um, finding time to be a daughter, a friend, a sister, a wife. Staying on top of housework and life admin, it's just a lot. And really all that Jess wants to do is just be present and play with little Alba, this little girl who she fought for so long to have and to be a mum. The fact that Jess is a mum is simply a miracle and getting Alba out of that war zone and then the brain surgery she endured in London, they're all just unimaginable. And none of this would have been possible without the blood donors all over the world that didn't just keep Alba alive, they made it possible to bring Alba home. This podcast is the creative solution to a social problem, which is persistent critical blood shortages in Australia as simply not enough people donate blood. One in three Australians will need blood in their lifetime, and yet only about one in 30 eligible Australians donate. It's my mission to change that while thanking as many blood donors as I can reach along the way. If you would like to become a blood donor in the future after hearing this story, please register your donation to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team. I love being able to keep track of our new donors and the Australian lives we have saved together. There is information on how to join and how to make a donation in the show notes. This podcast was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher. I am also your executive producer. Today's guest was Alba's mum, Jess, with a special little guest appearance from Alba herself. Audio production and welcome to country by my amazing husband, Jeff Fisher. Social media assets by Jason at Strosky Media. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend and make sure you are following me on Instagram and Facebook and check out our website milkshakesformarlie.org. And as always, I'll leave the final word to Marley. Thank you for my plasma.